This evening we uh, continue in our Advent season, looking at Christ coming into the world. We anticipate his birth in this season. Tonight we're looking at James, uh, John's famous prologue, and as we heard it read, I'm sure this was familiar to many of us. We often associate this passage with Christmas, and rightfully so, because in these verses we find such rich theology uh, about the incarnation of Christ and the theological depth. And we also find a lot of simplicity here in John's prologue. St. Augustine once said this about the Gospel of John. He said, John's Gospel is deep enough for an elephant to swim and shallow enough for a child not to drown. And this is true, I think, as we'll see uh, of John's prologue. There's great theological depth to be plumbed, but something so simple in the Christ that we behold here in our text. As we see in these first 18 verses, we see, as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And we behold the amazing reality of the incarnation that Christ condescended to us in human likeness, that the Son of God became flesh, was born under the law to redeem we who were under the law. And this is why Christmas is so exciting. This is why we are so eager to celebrate. This is what we anticipate during the season of Advent. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the fulfillment of the promise that was made in Isaiah chapter 7. The promise about Emmanuel, God with us. This is the greatest event in human history that Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and me. I've been following some of the World Cup here and there, and during one of the substitutions for one of the teams uh, that I was watching, the announcer said something to this effect. He said, you know, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is an opportunity for someone to come on to the pitch and make a name for themselves on the greatest world stage in human history. But here's the truth is that there is a far greater event that happened in human history and there's a far greater hero than any announcer could ever imagine. And John, John's gospel tells us about that very story and that very hero. The story of the Messiah promised from of old, the one who would come and make all things new. The promised servant who would suffer and who would be pierced for our transgressions. The God-man who came and demonstrated his love for us by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the greatest hero on the greatest world stage. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of the incarnation. If you're following along in your Bibles this evening, uh, we'll walk through John's prologue verse by verse. Uh, and then we'll really zoom in on verse 14, and together we'll behold our Savior, the very Word who became flesh, to set their people free. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's Gospel begins much like the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning. 
And this is not an accident because, as we'll see in verse 3, John wants us to see that Christ was the agent of creation in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I'll tell you this uh, outright, that this Word that John is speaking about is Jesus Christ. Most of you probably know that. We know this because uh, in verse 14, John links the Word with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who lived and breathed among them. This word is the Christ, the one whom the disciples saw with their eyes, the, ones they, the one whom they heard with their ears. And why does John call Jesus the word? Well, the Greek word here is logos. And this has led some people to think that perhaps John is importing some kind of uh, Platonic philosophy into Christianity. But this is not the case. In fact, as a Jewish fisherman, John is picking up on something inherent to the Jewish tradition. He is tying the person and work of Christ to the Yahweh we find in the Old Testament. But within the Jewish tradition, there was an Aramaic word, memra, that was used to describe the acts of God, the voice of God, the speech of God. And in places in the Old Testament where it says God, they would often write the memra of God or the word of God. So in our Bibles, in Genesis, for example, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth, uh, in certain Jewish writings, in certain targums as they're called, it says the word or the memra of the Lord created the heavens and the earth. So John isn't marrying Platonism and Christianity. No, John is actually appealing to his Jewish brothers and making an apologetic argument. He wants them to see and behold that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified, is in fact the very Son of God, the Word of God, who was in the beginning with God, and who was fully divine. John wants them to see that the, that the Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament has come and is here and has always been. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Here we see in the beginning, Jesus was distinct from the Father and yet Jesus is fully God. And this is Trinitarian theology right from the beginning of John's prologue. John wants us to see that this word that became flesh is fully divine. That Jesus is God. That the word was with God. That the word was God. And John is careful to say this explicitly right from the beginning. And the author of Hebrews has something to say about this divine logos as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, we see that Christ is the true prophet, the true word, the authoritative revelation of God. We see that formerly God spoke to his people through the prophets, but now through the incarnation, through the enfleshed word, God speaks to us through his son. And this has huge implications for our daily lives. Right, sometimes we feel like God doesn't speak to us today, or sometimes we feel like we need a new word from God. 
But Christ as the Logos, as the Word, as John describes him, is the fullness of the revelation from God that we see in Hebrews chapter 1. We don't need new revelation from God. Christ as the Logos, as the Word, is the fullness of revelation. And God has spoken authoritatively and definitively through his Word, through the Word, Christ himself. And we have all that we need for life and godliness right here in our Bibles, in God's word. And John's purpose in writing these things and recording these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his purpose in writing these things is that we would believe. John says this all throughout his gospel, that he was an eyewitness of these things. And he writes in John chapter 20, verse 31, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you're here this evening and you want God to speak to you, and your heart yearns to hear God speak to your life, he has spoken to you. He has spoken to you through the word, through the word became flesh. Come and behold your creator, the son of God, and you will find life in him. Verse 3, John continues, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This very word that was with God in the beginning, that was God, we see that all things were created by him. And just in case we had any doubts about this, John restates it in the negative for us. Without the word, without Christ, nothing in existence was made. Not a single thing, not a single atom was made in this universe without the, without the sustaining power of Christ. I mentioned the parallels between John 1 and Genesis 1 earlier, uh, and we heard Last Sunday evening in Proverbs 8, we heard of Christ as the creator and Christ's creative acts. Uh, We heard of the significance uh, of this for us, that only our creator could save the creature. And this is why I think John is concerned that we get this, that we get that Christ is our creator. In Christ, we live and move and have our being. Christ is upholding us by the very word of his power right now as each of us sits in this room. In Colossians chapter 1, we find very similar language about Christ as creator. We see that all things were made by Christ, that everything exists for Christ, and that Christ is the glue that holds everything in existence together. And Paul tells us in Colossians that Christ is before all things, meaning that Christ exists outside of time, that Christ is eternal. And in Christ, our creator, we find eternal life, as we see in verse 4. John continues in verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now when John speaks about the light, it's important that you know he's usually speaking about light 
in an ethical sense. We see this in 1 John when John is contrasting darkness and light. Uh, he's, He's dealing with it in an ethical sense. The kingdom of light is of Christ. The kingdom of darkness is of Satan. Verses 4 and 5, uh, they always remind me, actually, of several great scenes in The Lord of the Rings, but one in particular comes to mind. Uh, Some of you may know this or remember the scene where Gandalf leads the riders of Rohan down the mountain at Helm's Deep to the rescue, and right before they reach the enemy, the sun comes over the crest of the mountain And it blinds their enemies, it blinds the orcs, and it completely debilitates them, it paralyzes them. And this is similar to the kind of light and darkness imagery that John is using to describe the piercing radiance of the glory of the Son of God who is coming into the world, the penetrating light that uncovers every hidden thing. Evil and all its forms cannot overcome the light, as John tells us despite every effort. Jesus calls us to abide in him, to abide in the word, because he is the light of the world. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The entire book of John is written so that we may believe and share in this life in Christ, who is the light. We who walked in darkness, we have seen a great light that is coming into the world, and that light is the Son of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And the darkness The evil things that we experience in this world, the darkness can neither overcome Christ nor can it overcome those who abide in Christ. And Jesus, our good shepherd, he reminds us of this beautiful reality in a very tender way. In John chapter 16, Jesus reminds us that we will experience tribulation in this world. But he says to us, Fear not, for I have overcome the world. Take heart. Christ has overcome the darkness, and while we still experience the pangs of sin and death in this world, we can rest in Christ's promise that he has secured for us the victory. The darkness has been single-handedly defeated, that Satan has been crushed, and that Christ will come again And banish sin and Satan once and for all. And this is the light that John the Baptist bore witness concerning. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John the Baptist was a forerunner. He was one who prepared the way. He was the one who fulfilled the promise of Isaiah 40. 
He came as a witness to bear witness to the light. And don't underestimate this language of bearing witness. This word uh, witness in John, it occurs over and over again throughout John's gospel. And as I've said earlier, John wants us to understand that these accounts, these words that are written for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these things are true and they are the testimony of those who beheld them with their very eyes. This story of King Jesus is not just a fable or a legend that was made up. But this testimony concerning the Christ is true. John the Baptist bore witness to these things. John the Apostle bore witness to these things. And we, as believers, we now participate in that witness concerning the Christ. We are called to bear witness to our risen Lord. We see this in Luke chapter 24 after Christ's uh, resurrection, that we are called to now be witnesses to that truth concerning the word. That we are all bearing witness to something, whether we claim to or not. Some of us like to bear witness to our favorite sports teams or our favorite celebrities or the idols of our hearts that we fashion each day, material comforts, safety, success, career. But as John the Baptist was called to be a witness to Christ, we are now called to bear witness to our Lord and our God. As Thomas beheld the risen Christ and felt his hands and sighed and believed, we too are called to bear witness and say, my Lord and my God. John goes on to describe the rejection of the word that came into the world, the rejection of Christ. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. You see, the creator of the world comes into the world and the very creatures reject their creator. The very one who fashioned them in the palm of his hand, they are the ones who reject him. They are the ones who eventually cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And John tells us that he came to his own people. Remember, Jesus came first to the Jews, right? The, the people who knew the law and the prophets, who knew the Torah inside and out. They had Isaiah 7, Malachi 3, Micah 5, all of these prophecies concerning the Messiah that were very explicit. Em- Emmanuel, the messenger of the Lord, the one who would be born in Bethlehem. Their king. The scribes and the Pharisees had the law and the prophets, but they rejected the very Messiah who fulfilled the scriptures they so carefully studied. The word was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And it's tempting for us to sometimes say that if we were alive during Jesus' day, that we would have known better, uh, that we would have received him as the Son of God. But the truth is that our voices ring out among those who scoffed at Christ while he hung upon the cross. I like how the hymn, Before the Throne of God, above puts it. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. In our natural state, in uh, left to our own devices, we are alienated from God. We are hostile towards him in our nature. But God, in his great love, sent his son into the world to die on the cross for our sins. And he sent the spirit into our hearts to give us new life and to bring about the miracle of faith, which depends entirely on God and not on ourselves. John notes this in verses 12 and 13. Being born again is entirely a work of God. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation or even to our creation. We don't meet God halfway. No, to be born again, to receive new life, to place our trust in Christ is something that only the will of God can accomplish and not the will of men. And John says that when God accomplishes this work, we are heirs, we are sons and daughters of the living God. We are his children, and we have received the right to an everlasting inheritance that cannot perish. And now we come to arguably the most significant verse in John's prologue, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'll begin by telling you that this verse originally heard would have been a stumbling block for many of its hearers. In fact, the entire notion of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, it was an absolute absurdity in the first century. It was a scandal. This is because of the influence of Gnostic beliefs, which essentially taught that our human nature was bad, that our flesh was evil, and that true goodness and beauty, the divine, those things are in the higher forms, the, the mind and the spirit, the immaterial world. So the notion that God would be born of a woman, born in the flesh, a living and a real person with both a human soul and a human mind, it would have been heard as utter foolishness. How could the infinite become finite? How could the unchangeable enter the constraints of time and space? How could the word become flesh? Well, I'll tell you up front that the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, the actual mechanics of it is a mystery something that transcends the limits of our human understanding. We can attempt to describe this reality with human words and theological terms, 
but we cannot comprehend God exhaustively. We can't fully understand the particulars of the incarnation because we are finite creatures and God is infinite. The early church wrestled for several centuries about the natures of Christ and his one person. How could Christ be fully God and fully man, one person, son of God? And while our fathers in the faith recognized that on this side of heaven we can only understand the incarnation in part and not in full, they gave us some very helpful terminology to make sense of verse 14, the word becoming flesh. The early councils of the church speak of Christ's two natures in one person as the hypostatic union. You may have heard that phrase before. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the two natures, they're not blended together. They're not mixed. Jesus isn't a 50-50 split of God and man. No, his two natures exist perfectly and undivided, wholly distinct and yet in the one person of Christ. And our finite minds can't grasp anything beyond this. If we try to hash the particulars of this out further, uh, our our heads are either going to spin or we're going to wade into heresy, and we don't want that. Um, And what the fathers of the church understood and what the reformers grasped was that what is true of one nature of Christ is true about the person of Christ. What can be said about each distinct nature of Christ can be said about the one person of Christ. What is true about his humanity is true about the second person of the Trinity. What is true about his divinity is also true about the second person of the Trinity. And this is why we can say with Paul that the Lord of glory was crucified. What is true of Christ's human nature is true of the Son of God. And what is true of Christ's divine nature is true of the Son of God. And when we speak of the Word becoming flesh, we speak of Christ taking to himself a human nature. This is Christ's condescension and humility described in Philippians 2. And yet when it says in Philippians 2 that Christ was born in the likeness of men when the word became flesh, Christ doesn't give up or lose his divine nature. As we heard this morning, neither did Christ assume a fallen human nature in the sense that Christ inherited original sin by way of ordinary generation. You and I... We are born in sin. We inherit sin because of original sin. Adam sinned as our representative, and when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In our flesh, we can speak of our human nature as being fundamentally fallen in the sense that we are born. When we are born, we are already guilty of transgressing God's law because of original sin. But when the word became flesh, when Christ assumes human flesh in the incarnation, 
Yes, he subjects himself to the infirmities and frailties of our human condition, but Christ does not inherit original sin in the way that you and I do. Christ is not born into the world already fallen because this would mean that Christ was sinful. Now, I want to say one last thing about the word becoming flesh, about the incarnation. Some people throughout uh, the history of the church have asked the basic question, why? Um, why, why this way? Why the incarnation? Why did God need to assume human nature? Why did the word really need to become flesh and dwell among us? If God is God, couldn't he have just forgiven our sins and wiped the slate clean? Did he have to send his only son into the world to die on the cross for our sins? I'll try and answer this briefly, but if you want to dig into this at home and you want to geek out on some theology, there's a book called Why the God-Man by Anselm of Canterbury. You can explore that in depth. He discusses this very issue. And he has this great quote from the book. Uh, I'll read it to you. But this is, this is kind of the answer in a nutshell. He says, The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it so that the same person must be both man and God. I'll read that one more time. The debt... Speaking of the ransom price, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person must be both man and God. And Anselm goes on to discuss the idea of the incarnation further and connects it to substitutionary atonement. And I'll just give you the basic idea, but this is, this is really practical stuff for our faith um, and I think, I think this will be helpful for us as we think about the incarnation. The basic idea is this, is that God is perfectly just. And as human beings, we are called to keep God's law perfectly. But we can't keep God's law perfectly because we're sinful. And we need a perfect substitute who can fully keep God's law on our behalf. And we also need a sacrificial offering whose blood can pay the penalty for our sin. And therein is the necessity of the God-man. Only the word became flesh can keep the law of God perfectly in his obedience and make perfect satisfaction for sin in his blood. As God's word says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, For this reason... Christ had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Well, John's prologue ends with John the Baptist's identification of Christ, and John highlights the fullness of grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, John tells us that the pre-incarnate Christ has never been seen to the naked human eye. 
but that the word became flesh changes everything because in the person of Christ, the God-man, God of God and light of light has come into the world. And as it says at the end of verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, as we come to a close this evening, I want you to take hold of this reality. That Christ was born in the likeness of men for us and for our salvation. The word became flesh because of God's great love for us. God condescends to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ because he delighted to redeem for himself a people, to call to himself a people, to call us before the foundation of the world, each of us here this evening who believes and rests in Christ. He is delighted to redeem us. I like how uh, Athanasius puts it in his little book. He says, For we were the purpose of Christ's embodiment, and for our salvation, he so loved human beings as to come to be and to appear in a human body. Christmas is really all about God's great love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's the most famous verse in the Bible, in the entire world. It's the most well-known verse of Scripture. And that verse is about the Word who became flesh because of God's great love for us. And that love was demonstrated for us on the cross as Christ gave up his life for our sake. And Christ is not far off or distant from us now. He is our elder brother. He knows our pain. He knows our human frailty. As the author of Hebrew describes in chapter 2 and chapter 4, he was tempted like us in every respect and yet without sin. And in Christ we have a sympathetic high priest, one who knows what we've been through, what we go through, and yet who did not give in to sin. And when you feel crushed, by the guilt of sin, when you feel burdened by the weight of sin, when you feel overcome by your own unworthiness, remember that Christ was already crushed for your sin on the cross, that he endured the wrath of God, that he suffered for our sake, that he bore our sin, our guilt, our shame. And he did so out of his great love. And if you don't know Christ the word who became flesh, I would invite you to come and behold him. For in him you will find life and you will find grace upon grace. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled at your loving kindness shown towards us in Christ Jesus. We ask this evening that we would look upon him who was wounded for our transgressions, that we would find eternal rest for our souls, And that during the season of Advent, as we look forward to the birth of Christ, may we remember that the God-man bore our iniquities, and he did so out of his great love for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.